Welcome to the SOSV Climate Tech Summit podcast series. I am the AI voice of Ben Joff, a partner at SOSV and co-curator of the summit. In this episode, Dr. Gaurab Chakrabarti, co-founder and CEO of Solugen, a company specializing in sustainable chemicals, is interviewed by Dr. John Cumbers, founder and CEO of SynBioBeta. They discuss Soligen's progress in fundraising and building infrastructure, as well as its focus on developing climate-neutral and climate-negative chemicals. They talk about the industrial uses of Soligen's products, such as disinfecting water in agriculture and industrial water treatment. They also discuss the climate impact of its chemicals and their goal to replace 30% of U.S. chemical demand with domestically biomanufactured alternatives. Finally, they touch on the challenges of scaling biomanufacturing and the need for regulatory support. Welcome, everybody, to the most exciting session of the SOSV Climate Tech Summit. I'm so excited today to be able to introduce to you Gaurav Chakrabadi, who's the CEO and the co-founder of Soligen, one of my favorite bio companies because of all of this wonderful chemical technology that they have mixed in with some biotechnology, producing climate-neutral, climate-negative, sustainable chemicals. Gaurav, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having us here, John. Good to see you again. Uh, if anyone doesn't know, John was my TA in undergrad for biology at Brown. So it is true. Go away. We, that was 20, <laughs> was it 20 years ago? Something like that. Coming up. No, not that. It's 2008. That's what it was. Okay. Well, that's yeah. 14, 15 years ago. Okay. That's, yeah. Not too yeah, bad. Yeah. yeah. That's, uh, that's pretty close. It's great to be now working with the same, uh, in the same industry as you. Yeah. Tell us about Soligen. You've been going great guns lately with fundraising yeah. and building out infrastructure in Houston. Not everybody yeah. who's watching is going to know what Soligen yeah, yeah. makes. So uh, name some of the chemicals that you make. Name some of the products. Yeah. So we started with a, a molecule called hydrogen peroxide. Uh, then we transitioned to a molecule called gluconic acid and then glucaric acid. And now we're making uh, base molecules for nylon 6.6 and molecules that are going to go into um, packaging and basically adherent surfaces. So right now, we're really focused in on getting the glucaric acid platform scaled up in, into a cash flowing state and getting the next molecule out the door. So our goal is every 18 months, we want to launch a new molecule. Um, and so far, we've been pretty good at that. Uh, I hope we can continue doing it. Fantastic. What are the industrial uses of hydrogen peroxide? And then also, what do people use gluconic and glucaric acid for? Yeah, yeah. So it's funny, they all, peroxide, gluconic, glucaric acid, they're all used in largely the same industries. So if you look at an uh, agriculture, in agriculture, you need to disinfect water, right? Because you're going to give them the plants, you need to make sure there's no microbes in it. You use peroxide or peroxide-like molecules to, to kill the bacteria. With gluconic and glucaric acid, that those acids are used to deliver micronutrients in the fertilizer packages into the agricultural crops. So that's one bucket. The second bucket is in industrial water treatment. Peroxide, again, is a disinfectant that kills uh, bacteria. And interestingly enough, glucaric and gluconic acid in the water treatment sector are actually what's called corrosion inhibitors or corrosion control products, which coat the metal surfaces and the pipes and in all the tanks so that you're not getting metal corrosion. Uh, I can keep going with the, all the different industries this plays in, but this kind of gives you an idea of how we think about molecules at Solution. We like to find applications and use cases where it's 
building on one another, meaning it's not just a completely new molecule or a completely new application. It's somehow supporting our product portfolio to make a customer's life better. Uh, so because they have one source of product. That's great. And this is a climate summit. So tell us about the climate impact of these. Yeah, yeah. I think so when you look at what we're doing at Solution, the mission of Solution, right, it's to decarbonize uh, the chemicals industry. But that means a lot of things to a lot of people. To us, it means three very specific things. One, you need circular feedstocks. So this is either agricultural waste, recycled plastics, industrial emissions, or other waste streams as feedstocks. Today, we use agricultural streams as our, as our feedstock, primarily glucose. Two, uh, when we're moving forward, we're starting to use recycled cardboard. So we have a big partnership we haven't announced yet where we take a lot of recycled cardboard and chop it up into little pieces that end up being the sugar that feeds your whole entire reaction system. So that's one. Nobody, yeah. nobody here has a garage full of recycled carbon, so that's fine. No, yeah. If you have it, send it my way, please. Like, I'll give you my address. Um, you'll see, yeah, you'll save me some money. So that's number one, circular feedstocks. Two is a simple high-yield process. This is called the bioforge. Today, when you look at the chemicals industry, it's uh, your, your, your feedstock doesn't exactly turn into your product. It turns into your product and a lot of other stuff, right? And so today, the, the, the average in the industry is about 60% yield. The other 40% is either uh, carbon dioxide or it is some other feedstock or other product that needs to be sold. With the Bioforge, we use a chemienzymatic process where the first step is enzymatic and the second step is with traditional heterogeneous catalysts. That allows us to have near unitary uh, yield from feedstock to product. Um, so instead of 60%, we have 90 plus percent. And this has been proven at scale. The third pillar for uh, decarbonization of this uh, industry is local supply chains. You need to be near the user of that chemistry. Otherwise, you're actually transporting something that's very dangerous sometimes because you concentrate it all the way to the end user who has to then dilute. And like, th there's a lot of issues that pop up, not just from a sustainability standpoint, but from a safety and human health standpoint, that if you're closer to the end customer, you not only reduce emissions, but you actually make it easier to, to use the products. So those are the three buckets of what it means to decarbonize this industry. And if we think about the molecules that you've told me so far, which of those yeah. has the biggest impact on your, on your revenue right now? And then which of those yeah. has the biggest impact on the climate? So I would say glucaric acid is actually going to be revenue-wise the biggest mover for us. Oh, sorry. The biggest uh, driver for revenue. The uh, climate impact is actually also with glucaric acid uh, because a lot of the applications it's used for are currently using molecules called phosphates. Uh, and phosphates are pretty nasty molecules that cause eutrophication in water streams i.e. algal buildup. And so a lot of customers are switching, not just for the process uh, efficiency that we have and the cost basis, but also because they don't have to use something more dangerous like a phosphate. So that's probably got the biggest impact to date um, in terms of our customer portfolio. And you mentioned one of the applications was related to fertilizer. There's a lot of companies out there yeah. creating new kinds of microbial-based fertilizers. Yeah. Pivot Bio, like Join Bio. So yeah. you're servicing the traditional fertilizer market. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So basically, when you look at a fertilizer package, it's NPK, right? So sodium, potassium, um, uh, sodium, phosphate, potassium. We're not actually necessarily changing the NPK profile. We are doing something called micronutrient delivery. So there's a, a big volume of like metals, like iron and calcium and things of that nature that also need to be delivered beyond just nitrogen, phosphate, and potassium. 
the problem is the bioavailability of those micronutrients are really hard to get into a plant. So you need something like a glucaric acid, which has a much better bioavailability profile for plants to deliver those nutrients more efficiently. So basically, you're able to, uh, on a mass per mass basis, you're actually getting more of your micronutrient delivered when you have it encapsulated in, in this bio-based molecule. So you're compatible with these new kinds of fertilizer, is that right? Oh, 100%. Yeah, yeah. We, we're totally compatible with and, it. That's right. And I'm sure everybody watching knows the disaster that is nitrogen-based fertilizer. It's, yeah, it's not a fun one. Yeah. It's really In not, terms of the yeah. runoff, in terms of the nitrous oxide that's released, in terms exactly. of the Haber-Bosch process and all the energy that goes into it. So that's, that's uh, it's not surprising that that's your biggest uh, win in terms of carbon. Yeah. And for everybody watching as well, there's a frame shift that's going on because a lot of people think about synthetic biology companies and they think about giant fermenters and sugar going in and brewing, and, yeah. you know, the, the equivalent coming out in terms of you might have a brewery spitting out alcohol, but you might have a brewery yeah. now spitting out silk or pharmaceutical ingredients or chemicals or materials. You're different. You're not doing fermentation. Yeah. You're doing cell-free synthetic biology. Your, your power is in the enzymes that you're designing. Is that right? Exactly. So I'm going to maybe like keep it as high level as I can here. But um, if anyone wants to talk after go deep, uh, please do and save me from the corporate drudgery of running a company. Um, so the, the reality is when you look at fermentation processes to make products, there's something called mass transfer limitations. So the reason fermentation for chemicals has been tough, except for like pharma and fine chemicals, it's been tough because the, the oxygen mass transfer or whatever gas system you're using, if it's gas fermentation, you're, you're going through multiple layer, layers of diffusion. You have your, your uh, membrane, you have your cell wall, then you've got the inner workings of the cell where you're hitting different enzymes along the way, but not really hitting the enzyme that you want. So what ends up happening is a mass transfer barrier gets created. What we reasoned was instead of having this mass trans artificial mass transfer barrier, let's just poke at the enzymes that really matter here and put that into a chemical reactor. So instead of having a mass transfer barrier, you now actually have the most mass transfer possible. And that's how you scale these things so quickly. That's fundamentally like the mind shift that, that we've had. And I know a lot of enzyme companies are popping up that also see this as the, the big opportunity. You talked about scaling. A big part of that scale requires a lot of capital. Capital. It's known that the chemicals industry is very capital intensive. There's a lot of sunk yeah. costs in it, a lot of in infrastructure globally. You've raised capital from diverse sources yeah. from, from early stage 50 years, the VC here in San Francisco, right through to BlackRock in terms of pension funds yeah. and, and large amounts of capital. Tell us about the capital that you've raised so far, and then tell us what's on yeah. the roadmap for Solugen over the, over the next five to 10 years. Yeah, so capital we've raised so far, we've raised about uh, nearly $780 million in equity capital. Um, like you said, it started off with really focused VCs, but then it's kind of as we've been scaling our technology and customer base and commercial, uh, that, that capital has started to look like institutional funds. So like you said, like really, you know, traditional, almost private equity-like uh, players in this space, which is good. That means this stuff works because the 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 rigor that private equity and these institutional guys are putting into diligence, they would not touch a company like Solugen unless it was de-risked substantially. And so that's where we are right now. Where we're going, we've now hit the point where we can start getting debt capital for our assets. And so when you look at where we're going next, the D Department of Energy's loan program office is a really big one for us. Um, 
uh, I can't say here like all the timing on it, but there will be some announcement at some point soon on Solution and the DOE LPO. These are big loans. Um, these are up to a billion dollar loans at very low interest rates. It's the one that Tesla got that made their first Gigafactory the Gigafactory. And so in a similar vein, we believe that the DOE LPO is what's going to allow us to now break out even from private equity and, uh, and go into debt side of the story. Yeah. Fantastic. We were both in Washington, D.C. at the White House about 12 months ago for the launch of the Biden-Harris administration's executive order on the bioeconomy and biomanufacturing. Can you talk a little bit about that executive order and what in it was most exciting to you about support for the bioeconomy? Yeah. So I think there's like two ways that I look at um, the executive order. One is um, philosophically, what is it telling? And then two is what is practically, where's the teeth in this thing? So on the philosophically, what is communicating? The thing I got most excited by was one of the bold goals was to replace 30% of the United States chemical demand with domestically biomanufactured alternatives. Um, that's a big number, <laughs> really, really big number, right? Um, and so for, for us, that was huge because now all of a sudden, biomanufacturing is being put on the same playing field as Petrochem, which has never been the case. So philosophically, that's really helped us kind of get the story out there, not just to government folks, but also to customers. When customers saw this EO, they were like, oh, Solution, you're around. This is great. We're going to have to buy from you. So we might as well be friends. And the second bucket was basically focused on, okay, where's the teeth in this thing? And that's, I think, we're all still trying to figure out is where is the big teeth in this system? What we're realizing is it's all super interconnected. It's not just the bioeconomy EO sits by itself. It's interacting with every single department uh, in, the, in the government, the DOD, the DOE, uh, the agriculture department. Everyone is part of this EO. So what we've been doing is talking to the, uh, the leaders across these departments to understand how they plan to appropriate funds. Uh, the DOD has already put out some uh, guidelines on their fund announcement. I think it was $1.2 billion, but that's just the DOD. There's many more that are going to come. So I think we're about to see some pretty big moves in the next year on uh, this time. I invited Jiga Shaw from the Department of Energy. I know he's a big deal in terms of these loan guarantee programs. Yeah. I invited him to speak at Symbibeta last year. He couldn't come, but uh, there was a profile of him in the Wall Street Journal recently just talking about the scale of these infrastructure yeah. loans that the DOE is putting out. It's quite fantastic to see the the, the, the government yes. putting its weight behind some of these programs to what I see as balancing the the infrastructure investment that oil and gas have had this for the last you know, 50 years <laughs> yeah. or more, and finally bio is getting a, a crack at the whip. You're based yeah. in Houston, so you're surrounded by, by the oil and gas industry. Can you compare and contrast the subsidies or the loan guarantees? Yeah, um, I, I can tell you exactly because we went through the process of trying to raise debt um, as a not oil and gas company. Um, look, a lot of these banks, they're looking for 20-year demonstrated history on a plant. The synthetic biology field, as we know it from manufacturing, has not been around for 20 years, right? It's, it was John and Drew and these guys that really made it what it is today. So where we're sitting is there's a huge disconnect between what institutional folks are saying and then what the DOE can do. And that's why I think this DOE loan program is, is so important, not just for the money, but it's changing the perception of these guys who are now starting to realize there's way more opportunity here. I love it. And in terms of the yeah. progress that you've seen from the folks in the White House and in the government over the last 12 months um, executing on this executive order, are you happy with the progress that you've seen? Do you want me to be completely honest? Well, this is, this, <laughs> this is completely off the record, not recorded. So go for it. Yeah. Uh, yeah look, I... I 
I think we could be doing better. I, I think we've we've had these discussions. Things are things are moving in the way we want them. The problem, I think, is the real bottlenecks aren't being communicated properly. So, like, I'll give you one example. There's an assumption that the bottleneck is all in R and D, right? Oh, we got to throw more money at R and D. Great, let's do that. Let's see what happens. What ends up happening is you have a bottleneck in the labor side. So when when you start talking about, hey, I want to scale up a biomanufacturing facility, it's not the R and D scientists that are scaling it up. It's it's the people who are building these things. So where the bioeconomy today has been focused is a lot on this front end. But the reality is the, the bottleneck, at least as we see it, is here. And we need to be funding more vocational schools, more community colleges to, to teach biomanufacturing as, as a skill set. And all of a sudden, your supply and demand start to get matched up uh, much better. That's where I think there's a big gap. I think yeah. there's a big opportunity. The farm bill comes up for renewal once every five years. It's going to be renewed, should be in, in, in the next 12 months or so. There's a big opportunity here to really envision a bio belt across the entire country where we exactly. see a lot of these yes. rural communities taking their commodity feedstocks Precisely. like corn and soy yes. and being able to turn them into high value exactly. materials. And, and we have to train, right? Like we have to invest a lot of money in education and training that workforce because it's not just the PhDs that are going to be making this thing possible. If we think about the kinds of businesses that you want to be partnering in with in the future? Are there specific industries or companies that you'd like to partner with right now? Yeah, I think um, I, there's two extremes, I would say. One extreme is the very consumer-facing companies, and the other extreme is the ones that no one in the world has heard, heard of, but they're everywhere, right? So on this side, on the consumer-facing companies, these are like the P&Gs and Unilevers. They are making big strides on it. We are working with them on, on these things. And so I think having them be very visible there is very important for this industry. That said, the the, the invisible like 100-pound, 800-pound gorillas, like the folks who make the brick you know, in the building that you're in right now, right? Who made that? Like, like, there's probably these big, massive companies that we need to be partnering with to say, hey, we might have something. You have the distribution and scale. What does it look like if we work together? And so those are the two extremes where I see the, the biggest uh, outsized benefits right now. If we think about the climate emissions and thinking about you know, scope one and scope two and scope three, when are you finding people coming to you? Is it that they're trying to get rid of molecules from, from their manufacturing processes, is yeah. their end products? What are the kinds of conversations yeah. that you're having with these larger companies? These inbounds that come, obviously, sustainability is critical, right? It's almost like it's a Boolean. You either have it or you don't. Assume you have it, right? They do the analysis. They look at our LCA. Okay, it looks like you have it. Then it comes back to price. It all comes back to price still. And so like where we need to be thinking is we have to be going after markets with technologies that we know we can compete not just sustainably, but at a price point that matters too. And what are some of the molecules that come up and you're just like, no, I'm not yeah. touching that with a 10-foot barge? Uh, everyone talks to us about SAF and plastics. Um, I get those are huge volume opportunities. The problem is for you to have a competitive cost position in less than five years in those markets, uh, like a true competitive cost position, not parity, but a true cost position, it's unlikely uh, with, with some of the stuff I've seen. What yeah. is SAF? Oh, sustainable. I'm oh, sorry, sustainable aviation okay. fuel. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we, we focus more on, those are our ambitions, those big molecules. But I think right now we, we have this uh, stair-step approach called think big, act now. Think big is plastics and SAF. Well, if you break down how we get there, what are the, what are the key capabilities you need to make SAF and what are the key capabilities you need to make plastics? 
let's get those capabilities, but let's go after markets where we can monetize and drive free cash flow with that capability. Then we have the right to play in that market. Got it. And then talk to me about um, Houston being the, the central place that you're growing from. Is that where you're going to, are you from Houston originally? Is that why you're in Houston? Yeah, I, I'm from Houston. So obviously a little bit biased, but I think what's been really nice is we've been able to convert, I guess you'd say a lot of the folks who have been in the traditional petrochem industry into looking at biomanufacturing. And there's brilliant people. I mean, think about it this way. The petrochem complex has spent a trillion dollars on this headcount over the lifetime uh, of this industry. There's a very skilled labor set that if you can convert them into a biomanufacturing mindset, you have some of the best engineers in the world working on climate. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah. and you're going to continue to scale there then? That you're not, you, you talked about having bioforges around the country being closer to your customers, but so how do, how do you yeah. match those? So we are, yeah. So right now we've got, uh, we've, we've tripled our capacity on the Houston site. We have a second site in Lubbock, Texas. That's a small capacity site, but then we're building our largest um, plant in Minnesota next to agriculture use cases. So our feedstock is corn, but the, the, the offtake is in the agriculture space as well. Got it. And um, as you think about expansion internationally, what are your thoughts there? Where are the most desirable places? So it's three places that like pop up. One is Europe, obviously, for uh, I mean, Europe's the capital for sustainability. Two is Asia. Um, when you start looking at Singapore in that area, there's a lot of opportunity. And third is actually South America. I think Brazil and those areas, at least for the industrial sector, that sector of the 800 pound gorillas I was talking about, a lot of them are in that region. And it's wise for bio companies to start looking at ways to partner up down there as well. And I think you mentioned agricultural waste. You certainly mentioned glucose, but can you use agricultural yeah. waste as a feedstock? Uh, not quite. So right now we can use cellulosic sugars and traditional Gen 1 sugar, uh, but it's not completely the waste system. So like with recycled cardboard, there's still processing that needs to be done to get the sugar out of the stream. Yeah. Got it. And thinking about the regulatory environment, is that something that you come across? Yes. Yeah. All the time. So uh, it's one of the reasons I was in uh, D.C. last week. There's going to be a huge, uh, like just like I talked about the labor bottleneck, there's a huge bottleneck that's about to hit on the regulatory side for biomanufacturing, and that's the Toxic Substances Control Act, TOSCA, which lives under the EPA. Any new molecule uh, that hasn't been widely adopted needs to go through this approval process. And a lot of companies don't realize or know that until it's too late and they get shut down by the EPA. It's wise for us as a community to start having, putting some pressure on Tosca to say, hey, we're not Petrochem, we're safer. Give us the priority of looking at it. They have hundreds of applications and bioeconomy stuff is a very small percentage of it today. Yeah. Thinking about the next 18 months, what are the things that keep you up at night? If you could wave a magic wand, <laughs> what, would, be, uh, what yeah. would you like to be solved for you? Um, it's really interesting because I think it's the marrying the culture of manufacturing and like, um, building with the culture of developing new, uh, enzymes, new molecules that right now we're, we're vertically integrating across that whole stack. And it's a very tough cultural challenge to make sure everyone is aligned with the, the right goals. So more of a management, uh, reflection on myself than anything, but that's where I, I would say is there's the most opportunity. And if we think about the, the tool stack of synthetic biology, there's a yeah. lot of new technologies coming out around AI and generative AI for protein design and enzyme yes. design, a lot of new technologies for small scale fermentation, for scale up and manufacturing. 
if you could wave a magic wand and have a synthetic biology yeah. tool or technology that would make your whole process easier, what kinds of things yes. would you wish for? I, I can tell you that because we're trying to build it right now. So when you go from a 400 microliter well for an enzyme, setting its properties to what is effectively a 500,000 gallon system, which we have in the same facility, the physics of that system in the 500,000 gallons is, is really hard to model at that 400 microliter scale. So what we're trying to build out is a way to give a feedback loop earlier in the process of learnings from scale, like the like how a, a protein shears under a pump, right? That information is being fed into the 400 microliter scale, so we have a higher hit rate on, on the uh, execution. Excellent. Gaurab, it's been a pleasure to hang out with you. I hope that we've given everybody an insight into Sologen and the way that you're taking on the climate challenge and decarbonizing the polluting chemicals industry. Appreciate you taking the time to have a chat with us. Thanks, John. So good to see you. You too. Thanks, everyone. Bye.